Hello, and welcome to what will be our final episode of season three and the last episode we're recording in calendar year 2020. What an amazing first year it has been. Today, we're talking to Daniel Stillman, author of Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter, and self-proclaimed conversation designer. When I came across Daniel's work for the first time, I was fascinated because I myself facilitate quite a few meetings. I feel like I've been trained on many of the core disciplines of the practice, yet hearing Daniel speak about the importance of conversation in all aspects of our lives, specifically creating an operating model, a nine-dimension system for how conversations happen, I was intrigued by how he was looking at the art of conversation through a creative and design lens. The first time I came across his work, I heard him say, I have a design for that conversation, and I was hooked. Yes, I thought, because while I may never have uttered those words, there are many times when a team is struggling to get down to the root cause of an issue, solution around it, or address a particularly difficult problem, and in my mind, I'm already mapping out a structured meeting agenda that will get us to the outcome the team is hoping to achieve. I never thought of it in such terms, but yes, there is a design for every conversation we need to have in life. Now, that's the science of it, but there's a lot of art in it too. I love that we're ending season three on this subject because I imagine many of you are struggling to have some pretty big conversations as you look ahead. I can't wait for you to meet Daniel and hear about his approach. Listen in, and I'll see you on the other side. What intrigued me the most about you, since I network with a lot of facilitators and consider myself one a little bit, is this idea of a conversation designer, the fact that you name yourself that in your background in design. So give us a little bit of sense of your professional history and how you came to identify that as a place you want to spend your time. It's interesting that this idea of facilitation or being a facilitator, it includes some people and maybe it sounds like it excludes other people. Like, is it a professional title that some people say like, oh, I'm not a facilitator. But you believe everybody can do it, right, Daniel? Everybody is doing it. And maybe that's the difference between conversation design and facilitation. Facilitation is an official role. Certainly people like you and me get hired to facilitate dialogue for companies about stuff so that they can achieve goals that they would not be able to achieve otherwise in the time that they have because we bring process or shift power dynamics. And those are all things that facilitators do. But a lot of the people that I work with through my public workshops are people who are maybe less official facilitators or who don't have the title facilitator, but are sure as shooting facilitating. They are people who are responsible for designing conversations in the broadest term possible inside their organizations, inside their families. I think the broadest definition that I have right now is we are all designing conversations all the time. Like you're designing this conversation and I'm co-designing it with you. And I could frustrate your design by not answering any of your questions, (laughs) right? And that would be like, well, wait, what game is Daniel playing? Why is he not playing along with this very simple structure I have of I ask him questions and he answers them. He's trying to turn everything into a conversation or is trying to reverse interview me constantly. And those are great skills to have. Reverse interviewing is like one of the best interview skills to have. I think about facilitation in terms of workshops because I'm often doing 10 to 20 people at a time. But you think about conversation design down to the one-to-one interaction or even the conversation we're having with ourselves. And so that was super intriguing to me. And you've obviously studied this and put some models to it. So tell me how you got to this point. There's two things. My parents were both really spiritual people. The idea that there is a fundamental reality underlying all disparate phenomenon we see in the world, it's not a particularly controversial idea. 
I went on to study physics, which is what I have my my bachelor's in, seeks to find what is happening underneath all of the underlying phenomenon. So right. when you see that an object in motion doesn't tend to stay in motion, but falls still after some time, everyone just assumes that that's the way things are. But it takes somebody like Isaac Newton or Galileo to look past the phenomenon and say, this is what's really happening. An object in motion tends to stay in motion unless interrupted by another force. And then they go and study friction with such astute clarity, with such consistency, with a systematic approach that they start to be able to tell you really, really interesting things about the world. That's where I come from. And in a way, I think I've done that for conversations in my own way. On my podcast, and I interview folks for my podcast, so it's fun to be on someone else's show. I've been interviewing people for the past three years to try and understand if we are designing conversations, what are we designing when we design them? What's designable? Yeah. What is hard to design? What's easy to design? I think there's a lot of material out there that will say like, oh, change your tone. But tone can just be lipstick on a pig. Tone can actually be easy to change, but it's really hard to change the structure or the content of the conversation unless you know what you're doing. And so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years is trying to understand what are we shaping when we shape conversations? Because we are all trying to shape the conversation. I mean, that's the essence of marketing and branding to lead the conversation or not to be a fast follower. And those are all designs for a conversation. I'm sure you work with organizations and say, well, we don't want to get too far ahead of the conversation. (laughs) And that's, and for good reason, right? You don't want to be too far ahead of your time. Sometimes other people want to create markets. The interesting mix between your science background and belief that there's this underlying reality and then your design background, which is super creative. You do a lot of design thinking and innovation. My background is from the strategy side. It's very linear thinking. We're trying to get from here to here, and I'm going to design a structured conversation that get us to that outcome. I imagine a lot of your workshops have to allow for that space for creativity and innovation and getting everybody's voice. I would propose that a strategy conversation is not as linear as you would suggest that it is because there's a cone of strategy. There's where we are today. And then there's all the futures. And the further out we go, the more uncertain it is. For those of you not watching at home, I'm drawing larger and larger circles. A strategy conversation is where we are now and where we want to be. That question of where we want to be is non-trivial because there's a lot of we's in that. I presume you have to facilitate a lot of alignment. That was one of the things that resonated as I was looking at your deliverables is that executive alignment is critical to any marketing strategy, right? Yeah. Getting everybody on the same page. So we do a lot of goal setting and audience definition and mm-hmm. message matrix and things like that, just so we're getting out of the gate on the right foot. I was hoping you could speak a little bit about some of the basic brass tacks of facilitation, things like designing agendas, helping teams understand how to build agreement, difference between consensus versus commitment. Having a framework for it is not the same thing as being able to do it. This is one of the challenges of teaching facilitation. This is first order versus second order learning. There's lots of frameworks for good facilitation. I use a a 9P model in at least one of my workshops. I have an online course and workshop on designing agendas. There's an approach to it. But when you talk about creativity, I think that's the essence of good creativity is having more options right? To try more things before you choose one thing. Otherwise, you're just doing the same old, same old. And you might get lucky most of the time, but in other instances, you will hit a wall. So for example, some of the nine Ps, I may not list them all (laughs) perfectly. We'll see how I do. But there's people, 
Like, do you actually understand the mindset? Do you have an empathetic perspective? Do you know what the capacity of the people are? And do you know what voices need to be in the room and what voices should be left out of the room? Do you know which voices should be included in the conversation but can't be there? And how do we do that? And that's what we're always doing in design thinking with personas and empathy. And so the people determine the conversation wholly and completely. The amount of people, the type of people, the amount of time you have with the people. So people, purpose, and place. I wouldn't say the top three, but they're three super duper. If you do not know why we are all coming together, it's a waste of time, obviously. And the place that we're having the conversation affects it. This is one of the biggest things that I think many of us have noticed with online distributed facilitation is that some places allow us to do certain things and make certain things possible versus other places. You've talked extensively about your use of Mural. We've invested in Miro as an agency. Learning how to facilitate even a post-it exercise online via that mechanism versus you've even mentioned you can write more on a tiny virtual post-it than you can on a big post-it. You and can. change the dynamic a little bit. Yes. I feel like Miro and Mural are like the Mac and the PC of our day because they do very similar things. Mural is more facilitator oriented. It is okay. a place that allows you to do things like summon people. You can actually gather everybody's attention to a place. Miro is very much like, oh, we're all here co-creating together. In my workshops, I tend to do a lot of balancing large and small conversations because Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that I drive alignment is not just having one big 12-person or 20-person roundtable conversation where one jerk can dominate the floor. I'd like to isolate that jerk. Yeah. (laughs) It's really hard to do that online. It's not impossible. A lot of people have discovered you can do breakout rooms in Zoom. What they may not have discovered is that there's a lot of corporations that do not allow the use of Zoom for various security reasons. Several of my clients either have their own product that they prefer to use. I ran a session recently with a large company that has their own video conferencing platform. And they're like, we're going to try to do it on Zoom for you, Daniel. And there's this new Chrome plugin that allows all of the features for the desktop plugin to happen because the desktop allows a very different experience. You, You may not know this. The grid view, for example, doesn't exist on the Zoom web platform. And a lot of these big companies, the desktop app is banned because they want people to be using their native video conferencing platform. And so one of the things that some people like in Zoom is like, oh, I can really see everybody. I have the the Brady Bunch view, as it were. And breakout rooms are actually really fast and really easy in Zoom. And so we did that. And somewhere between an eighth and a sixteenth of the people had extremely hard time with the technology. And this is a tech company, one of the largest tech companies in the world. I'm doing a two-day training and somewhere between one-eighth and one-sixteenth of the people are falling out. So the place is not appropriate. And we tried. We said, okay, day two, we're going back to your native platform. And that meant that a facilitator inside of that company had to help me do all of the things because I do not have the power to shape that place. It's a literal game of telephone. And so in person, we've been here for 40,000 years. I have three dimensions of freedom of movement. And when we have people, we can say, hey, you two, you two, you two, you two. That doesn't take too long. It's even faster. We can say, hey, just grab a partner and they can just grab a partner. And then they do because they have total, utter freedom of movement. They can look and scan so quickly because we've evolved that way. Before those 40,000 years, we were good at rapid spotting of things with our eyes, which is why we can catch balls and catch food. So we're highly evolved for those spaces. And we're in these spaces that we are not highly evolved for. And these spaces are not highly evolved. This is one of the things that happens in 
the workshops that I teach, I think it just takes practice. Everyone's like, give me the tips. And Misty, you know, as well as I do, you can find a dozen blogs with a dozen posts, like here are the top 12 tips to facilitate better workshops on Zoom. But that doesn't change what happens in the middle of the workshop when you panic and tighten up, (laughs) which is why self-management is the most important conversation there is. Like the conversation with myself, okay, how's my breathing? Don't freak out. How's everyone doing? (laughs) Let me get evidence about how people are doing rather than just guess or worry. I think the conversation that our clients are asking is how do we do better than just migrate meetings online? I've heard some others, even on my podcast this season, talk about this idea is go back to the problem. What were you trying to solve in the first place by bringing a bunch of people together and then design a new conversation in the right place to your point? What advice do you have based on the different kinds of leaders that Mm -hmm. have to do different kinds of meetings on how to use the technology and how to prepare for that? It's an interesting challenge, Misty, because one of the reasons why I started working in that style of rapid breakouts, and this is going back 10 years now, is just because of time. The workshop math of a large circle conversation breaks down really rapidly. Check-ins are really valuable. They can be really valuable. Getting everyone in the group to say one or two minutes about where they are and how they're feeling. It certainly works in the men's group that I'm in. It actually works great in executive boardrooms as well. I don't do enough well. of that. That's good stuff. That can be great, but some people are like, can you get to the point? Why are we dilly-dallying around? So the question is like, well, how can you get everyone to check in on something that is relevant to what we're doing? Designing those kinds of non-BS icebreakers is non-trivial. Even when we have 10 people, which is not a very big group, and everyone speaks for one minute, that's 10 minutes. Some companies that I've worked with are stuck in 30-minute meeting cultures, which is really hard. Now, this is one of the big challenges of online facilitation is we don't have full days anymore. A, because it's impossible to look at a screen for that many hours. And B, people have their kids at home in very many instances. And I just want to give a shout out to Eve Rodsky, who wrote a book called Fair Play. I went to high school with Eve, and she was on my podcast late last year. And it's about designing the conversation between couples about how they divide work at home. Interesting. And she uses she does it through a card game. And not for nothing, this is changing the interface of the conversation, right? It's changing the place of the conversation from you're not doing enough or I'm doing everything to let's look at everything that has to be done and then let's deal the cards out and see what's what. Mural and Miro are ways that we change the conversation through changing the interface of the conversation. So what if we got everyone to say what they think or feel about the problem, not out loud, but on a piece of paper? Silent clustering can be faster than out loud clustering. But the only way this works, Misty, is if we are able to trust the group to manage itself. Yeah. Sometimes the desire to hold the whole group conversation comes from a sense of, hey, it's my responsibility. Like they're paying me. I've got to look good and I've got to hold this thing together because if I put them in small groups, they could just spin out into the universe. You're right. If I have four hours and I got to get you from goals to execution, and I know you're paying me to do that, I know I got to keep it moving. How do I keep the pace, but also keep people in mind? Yes. Take something out of your agenda. It's always a good idea to take something out of your agenda. (laughs) And I know this. These are one of the core principles we teach our staff. Make sure that you have the time to have the conversation you need to have. Yeah. But I don't always remember that. Look, it's just math. Just round everything up and add everything up really, really aggressively. When I'm working with a facilitator on their agenda and they're like, okay, so it'll be two minutes for me to introduce this idea and then five minutes for 
people to, they're like, okay, okay, maybe it'll take me three minutes. And then they'll, they'll <laughs> two minutes of, I want four sticky notes from them. So that'll take four minutes. And then everybody's going to share them out. So that's 30 seconds per sticky note times 10 sticky notes. The math is tight. And I'm like, no, no, everything takes five minutes. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it takes you five minutes to introduce it. She's like, it's not going to take me five minutes to introduce it. I'm like, it will. Yeah. It's going to take you three minutes. You're going to think of something else you want to say. Somebody's going to interrupt you and ask you a question. You might start a little late. Just take the first 10 minutes and just pour it out for your homies. Like, <laughs> you know, this is like just... Ease it in. Yeah. Like Get them warmed up. The first 10 minutes, you don't have it. It's not yours. Do you know the, this term, the angels share? Mm-mm. Bourbon casking over 20 years evaporative lost happens. And that's called the angel share. You're just going to lose some. If you have an agenda that is tight, 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 that is a fragile agenda because if anything goes wrong, it will break. What you want is an anti-fragile agenda, something that gets better with chaos. That's hard to do. And that means that you have to have patterns at your disposal that make an agenda more fluid and flexible Sure, and already prepare a cut something out and b have something else ready in the wings that you can cut out. Things start to get a little fuzzy or harder. You can say, you know, let's dig into this for another five minutes. How do you help people identify their individual passions in conversation and then bring that into the workplace? What coaching is really, it's not one thing. There's some people who think that a coach is somebody who tells you to drop and do 20 pushups and (laughs) do 40 sprints and to keep doing those drills. And a sports coach can be that. They can push you. They have some sort of structure that they're leading you through, some sort of program or process that they're driving the conversation through. I don't know if you've ever read The Inner Game of Tennis. Timothy Galway wrote a very beautiful and very weird book that's not about tennis. It's about coaching. And his thesis was, how do you teach somebody to do something different than they're doing now? This is a non-trivial concept. I think a lot of people think that coaching is telling somebody the right way to do something. Timothy Galway would say, you just hit them some balls or ask them, what do you notice? Just hit to their left side and just make them continue to work on their backhand is a different approach than saying, okay, I'm going to tell you everything about how to do a backhand. Just putting somebody in a situation where they have to practice their backhand, lowering the tension, lowering the stress level so that they can actually try something new or emulating for them and saying, well, what did you notice? That's about creating moments for simulation, moments for practice in a safe space. I think that's one of the ways that people notice. It's certainly the way that I run my facilitation masterclass is through simulation and practice. Frustratingly for people who take it, I don't teach as much theory as they would like. The theory comes out during the reflection. This is how people really learn is through having a concrete experience and then unpacking it and then trying to make a framework with it and then trying something out new themselves. And this is really the designer's approach to things, which is like, well, let's try something. Let's make do an experiment. Let's give it a try versus the business approach, which is let's make everything perfect before we launch. Asking versus telling is a really important tension in leading anyone or anything. Saying, here's how I'd like to do things is sometimes something that has to happen. I'm not saying telling is bad and asking is good. Ed Shine, who wrote the book Humble Inquiry, does make some of that distinction. And in your own experience, I'm sure you've had this where somebody tells you something and you're like, I know that. Don't you think I know that? Is very different than somebody saying, I'm not sure if you knew this. I noticed this. And Mm -hmm. it it might be a problem if you don't take care of it. And you're like, yeah, I'm aware of that. Thank you so much for bringing that up. You're trying to tell somebody something, but you're coming at it from a humble inquiry perspective. 
teams and groups and people are the same way because groups are just a group of people and people are like that. People don't like to be told. Some people have been trained to want or need to be told. So the question is, what type of team do you have? What do you want to get out of them? I often start a lot of my group dialogues with appreciative inquiry because I do think it's a more inviting place to start a yeah. conversation. Not for nothing. It's not the only way to start things off. What's happening is a fine way to start a coaching conversation. Like, what's happening? And somebody tells you what's happening. They tell you their story. And then I use my active listening skills to pull at the thread and find out what's really happening. As marketers, we are constantly solving problems or optimizing or making things better. And I imagine yeah. you work with quite a bit of marketers, especially on your design thinking and innovation space. So building on strengths and iterating from there mm. is something I could do a lot better at as a facilitator. Sure. We all could. It's also really common to start from, all right, what's broken? Let's fix it. But most things are systems and systems. You need to look at the whole picture. And that means yeah. some things are working. In your book, you talk about people, innovation, power and gender, turn-taking, interface and space, cadence, threading, goals, air and repair. I didn't understand it the first time I read it, Daniel, but then I saw how you apply this. Yeah. This is literally how conversations happen. And like you said, some things maybe are working, some things are not, but is this a fodder for coaching and how you build a meeting and really think through all the elements of how is yeah. this going to be effective? The nine elements of the conversation operating system that I have in my book, Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter, available in all fine bookstores. I wrote that book because I've been learning and trying to make sense of what I was learning. There's theories of conversation. And then the question is, well, how do you apply it in practice? And if we're designing conversations, this question of what are we designing? One thing we haven't talked about is I, I studied industrial design where I got my master's at Pratt in Brooklyn. And one of the things they taught us is physical material tells you something about how to design with it. Like making a wooden spoon and making a metal spoon and making a glass spoon or a ceramic spoon, it's still a spoon, right? So the purpose and the function are all the same, but the material's different. And how I shape the material and what the material demands of me and what I can demand of the material is different. It's a conversation. If you try to make a spoon out of wood in the style of a metal spoon, it'll break. It's yeah. too thin. It can't be done. When I first heard this term conversation design back in 2015, I was consulting with a group in Australia and they called their facilitative practice conversation design because they were designing conversations for groups yeah. in order to shift the conversation inside the organization. An organization is a conversation that is moving in a certain direction based on what the CEO, what the teams are talking about, what they believe is possible. And they'll just keep going in that direction unless the market hits them in the face or the CEO wakes up and realizes that something needs to be done differently or until somebody inside of the organization decides to be an entrepreneur and slowly do the work of changing how the organization thinks about who their customer is, what their real product is, and what success looks like for them. The conversation OS was just me trying to explain the essence of some of these models and what I thought was true in my own experience. People, interface, power, turn-taking, cadence, error and repair, threading, goals. Those were things where they seemed universal across a couple of models, but they also seemed to me to be the ones that were easiest to see and easiest to shape in the context that I was designing in. If you look at the the conversation operating system, some people have a very high error recognition system. 
We know this in our own lives. There's some people, if you tell them anything, they're going to explode. And there's some people who can say, this is going to be a hard conversation, but I know we can get through this together. And that's a very, very different attitude towards error and repair. Any error is repairable. We're going to work through this together versus what did you say? If there's more truth in the hallways than in the meetings, you have a problem. If you can't even talk about it in the hallways, you have a bigger problem. And there are some organizations where we cannot even have that conversation in the hallways. How do you design the conversation so that people can have that conversation? Appreciative inquiry is one way because we're not going to condemn the people. If we say everything's broken, how do we fix it? The people who've been responsible for creating that, they may not be ready to hear that it's broken, or they may want some recognition of the fact that They've been working really, really hard on this for years. Thank you very much. And if it wasn't for so-and-so in department such-and-such, we would be doing much better on it. So let's start with what's working in this. And then let's talk about how would we like it to be. You talk about nine conversations and you did this model of self dialogue, team and community. And then there's kinds of conversations. There's processing, mentorship and coaching, facilitation community that leads to org design. David White's a poet wrote a book called The Three Marriages. The Three Marriages was this interesting breakpoint of we have the world in our relationship to the world, us, and then there's us in that. So there's two marriages at least. And then there's the third, which is to our beloved, if we're so lucky to have one in our lives. And people talk about work-life balance, but there's no balance. It's a dance. There's a dynamic balance. And what's lost in work-life balance is usually taking care of ourselves. David White's three marriages definitely put that bug in my brain of these fundamental conversation sizes. I also get the question all the time as a facilitator, what's the ideal size for a breakout room? What's the ideal size for a sprint or a workshop? And the answer is whatever you have. If your stakeholder says these 11 people need to be there, you can't go, well, I'm sorry, 11 is a super annoying number. Because if I divide it in two, one group's going to have five and the other group's going to have six. Right. Right. And then if we do group rounds, it won't work out. So you make it work. You have to make it work. There's no ideal size, but there is size in conversations. And the interview I had with Dave Gray, who was one of my mentors and gods of designing conversations, he co-wrote a book called Game Storming, which was like my Bible 10 years ago about having patterns to bring into a conversation to shift it. These were designs for conversations. Let's play the game, empathy mapping. It's a design for a conversation. The design going through the various steps of your strategy workshop, it's scalable. The questions are the same. The size of the group doesn't matter, but it does. It affects it. Yeah. Doing it with one person is probably actually a little bit harder than doing it with 10. So many of the interviewees I've had on this season talk about this concept of leading yourself first. Very important in marketing. So explain to us how you're passionate about that and how you use that in coaching. When I started trying to pull apart conversations, there was this idea of internal and external conversations. There's this mirror between how I, an individual, believe I like to be treated. I can't talk about something if I can't do my work. I can't look at an issue. I will never solve it. This is what is hidden to me. What is my shadow? If organizations can't have the internal conversation with themselves about what's not working, that is their organizational shadow. If we can't face it, we can't work on it. James Baldwin said, not everything that can be faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. So I think 
we know that feeling in an organization of like, just nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to look at it. It's really hard to do that for ourselves. Having a coach or a therapist can be so helpful because even our best friends often won't do it for us. You talk about that as blind spots. Yeah. How do you find your blind spot? I know it's a bit of a trick, isn't it? <laughs> because they're your blind spots. There's some exercises that can help you do it. There's something called the Johari window. An interesting exercise made by two guys named one named Joe and one named Harry. I kid you not. That's wow. why it's called the Joe Harry window. It's a two by two of what I show and what I see and what I don't see and what I don't show. And so I actually have a piece of paper. I just found it a couple of days ago. I sat down with my friend Carl a couple of years ago, and it's just like a list of words, the characteristics of a person, energetic, curious, empathetic, interested, combative, positive and negative terms. A through Z. And then you say like, I am, I'm not. I am, I'm not. And then Carl goes, Daniel is, Daniel is not. And then we just <laughs> map it all out. There's actually a software tool or two on the internet for this. And you can map it all out. And then I'm faced with the data that I don't think I'm combative, but Carl thinks I'm combative. The question is, now that we have that data, what do we do with it? How do we peel back those layers? The truly unseen is very hard to work out and to work on. And I think that's where slowing down is really helpful and having a trusting space is really helpful. When things go wrong, it's very easy to just pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. It's much harder to say, well, what was my role in that? How did I create that without wallowing, yeah. without beating yourself up? It's a fine line for mm. me. I love to beat myself up because I like to do things right. So the question is, what do you do when something goes yeah. wrong? This is error and repair. How do you repair it? So for me, there's an introspective muscle that I have. I'm happy to excavate and look at multiple narratives for what went wrong and multiple and ways to look right. at it. And exactly. So yeah. I'm willing to hold the problem and to rotate it, slice yeah. it up, lay it out, and then ask, what are all the ways that I could put this together this yeah. is so critical for a facilitator in particular, or a conversation designer, to be able to see those blind spots and see them when they're happening in the moment and be able to hold them in the air and say, okay, this is what's happening. And I'm not going to let this happen. And be able to coach yourself through it. I am so grateful to work in an organization where my team will call me on it every time. Misty, that thing is happening where you retreat because you got your feelings hurt, you yeah. know? <laughs> Calling something out in the moment is really different than waiting afterwards. But on the other hand, it's about perception. It's a narrative that they're telling about your behavior. You could be like, well, actually, no, I was just thinking. I was just right. creating space for other people to participate. You and Story. your team have different stories, different narratives about what's happening. And that can be really hard to change those stories. In marketing, so often we miss each other because we have different language. I might have an acronym for something that nobody understands, yes. or I might call something an ecosystem that someone else thinks of a user flow. So this idea of shared language and culture is not only important for getting the work of the day done, but getting the conversations that need yeah. to happen out on the table and having a way to do that. I think often acronyms obfuscate, to use a, a dime word. I find this so often people think that it accelerates conversations, especially at like large organizations, they've got their alphabet soup and they rattle it off. And it seems like a helper for rapid conversations. Slowing conversations down is one of the most powerful ways to transform them. Actually taking the moment to say what you mean in plain language can be transformative. This is sometimes I think the sole value of using an external consultant is they go, wait, what does that mean? 
unapologetically. Just and then they have to say like, oh, right. Oh, yeah, we always do that, our acronyms. <laughs> and then they tell you what it means. And then you go, wow, okay, so that sounds like a really important issue. Or, well, wait, why is it that way? And so that's peeling back the layers of the onion and slowing things down with inquiry. If you have that question as a facilitator, chances are someone else in the room does too. What's also likely is that people are unwilling to even wonder what it's supposed to mean because they think they're supposed to know or keep up, right? And so people are kind of like, okay, I think I know what he's talking about, but let's keep going because I should know. I can't remember it. Enforcing plain language is awesome. What you're also talking about is naming things the same thing. Like, is the red that I see the red you see? I don't know. I have a friend who uh, one of her favorite exercises is to ask everybody in the room to point to something red. And we all point at something red and you're like, well, what does this mean? Well, we all have a different perception. So when somebody says persona, for some people, that means a research-backed summary of an average type of behavior in a population. Other people will use a persona as an abstraction of a single person. So we interviewed Bob the Builder or Connie the Organizer. We rhyme them, what they are and what they do. And we have these types of behaviors that we've named. Or we say like, oh, well, here's Misty. And I'm, her name wasn't actually Misty. It was actually Susan. But I'm summarizing her. That's like a, what I used to call a person board. When I would go out and do the research and we had to explain to the client, here are the dozen people that we interviewed. And here's a summary of each one of those people. Those are two very different things. Like, is a persona a person or is a persona a summary of a type of behaviors that's happening? And does it something I do in the beginning of the process to explicate my assumptions? Or is it something I do at the end of the process to indicate who my targets are? Or is it to say, like, here are these four types of people that do exist? These are the only four types of people that exist. Or is it, here's our four target people. And so what are we talking about? You'd be surprised how often we run into that very problem. I would not be, I'm not surprised (laughs) at all. So actually saying, here's this and only this is a persona, and this is how we make one. And anything that is not made in this way is not a persona. It's something that my friends who are design researchers are trying to coach their organizations on how to make good personas based on good research, non-trivial conversation that takes time and effort to move forward. I would be remiss if I didn't dig in a little bit to your workshops on innovation. You have prototyping, problem framing, design thinking, Google ventures, and then multi-week workshops on innovation. So as an agency who is moving into the customer experience design thinking space, help me understand if I were your client, Daniel, how you would approach me about what problem we're trying to solve and maybe even put together a proposal for how you could help one of our teams or our clients through these kinds of exercises. I've learned that proposals are only given between people who have purchasing power. (laughs) (laughs) So if you wanted me to scope out an agreement for what we can do, we can, that's a whole other conversation. I came from the world of industrial design where there's a person and there's a product and there's an organization. And the question of what should we make and what do they want and what do they need was of paramount importance. Human-centered design, it wasn't really taught that way as human-centered design, but it was just human-centered. Yeah. What wasn't taught to me in design school so much, we kind of learned it the hard way, is stakeholder management, stakeholder conversations about all of those things that are existing in the world. 
And so sometimes maybe I'm just a little naive, but I personally think that if you haven't tasted something for yourself, you haven't tasted anything. That's an old saying. I think Marcelo Ficino said something like that. He who has not tasted for himself has tasted nothing. I think the idea of presenting a report and expecting people to actually get it is, in my own experience, I feel like there's always a gap. For me personally, I've always enjoyed giving them the opportunity to feel the pain of their customers. And I'm not alone in this. Jared Spool, who is a noted user experience design expert, has said that everybody in the organization should have six hours of exposure to customers every two weeks. It's an interesting cadence of conversation. Now, the question is, who is their customer? Everybody inside of an organization has a customer. If it's legal or HR, their customer might be internal to the organization. If they are on the product side, their customer might actually be the external user. If it's a B2B or a B2C company, that customer is going to look different. I definitely believe and have always made it a part of my innovation workshops to try and get people real contact. And not just at the end of the process. I think one of the things about the Google Ventures style sprint is that you start with the assumption that people have an okay understanding of the people and the problem and or there's some research that people need to parse through. I've tended to work at organizations where this was not true. There was always a surprising number of layers between the people who are supposed to be solving the problem and the people who have the problem. That's a very long distance conversation. It's a game of telephone. I believe that as early as possible at the beginning of the process, people should encounter direct empathy with people who are currently struggling with the thing so that they really feel it in their gut, the immediacy and the challenge of what we need to do. Things that I always have tried to institute in my workshops, even if it's a two-day workshop, we do that whole thing where we get out of the building, which is much harder Mm -hmm. to do now, but it's actually really easy to find people to talk to on the internet. So there's lots of ways to do it. Having that deep gut experience of what is happening is important. And then the question that design thinking asks of us is, now what? Yes. Right? So like, what will we do with all of this data? How will we chunk it down, synthesize it, turn it into insights? Again, non-trivial. And what will we do with those insights? What kind of opportunities do we see? What kind of ideas would we like to try? And how can we rapidly prototype them, iterate and test internally before we rapidly prototype and iterate our customers directly? That's the design thinking process. As you've grown in your own learning of these concepts, how has it changed the way you see the conversations in your life? And can you share with us an example of a really good conversation for you and a not so good one where you're self-analyzing as you're going through it? One of the things that I've realized is that conversations are precious. Yeah. Getting somebody to the table is non-trivial. When somebody leaves or walks away from the table, you can't always get them back. And that's really hard. That's authentically difficult. I've become more introspective about conversations, but I think there's also a realization that you can't always fix every conversation, nor should you want to, because sometimes there's no there there. And I'll give you one example. Racism has always been a problem in America. Yeah. America was and people don't like to hear this, but America was built on racism, slavery and subjugation of native people pretty much baked into our DNA. Some people don't really like having that conversation. The conversation is really at the surface right now with the murder of George Floyd 
really was a gut punch to America. And people really noticed what was going on. And when I say people, I mean, white people started Mm -hmm. to know what was going on more. And so in my own work, I really asked myself, what does it mean to be an anti-racist business? Yeah. And how do I actually approach giving back in the work that I do? And I decided to start having some 100% scholarships for some of the public workshops that I do. That's cool. Yeah. And it felt great to do. And I got some pushback from some corners. So there was a lot of people who shared it on, who said, this is great. I'm so glad you're doing this. And there's one woman who I know professionally in particular, who emailed me and actually posted about it, took an email that I had sent out, removed some of the identifying information, but was like, this is the wrong way to do outreach. She, she really criticized my approach. And it, I'll tell you, Missy, it really hurt. I felt I'm terrible. Sure. And I went through this whole introspection process of like, am I doing it wrong? Like, am I doing, is this approach bad? And some of the feedback I got back was like, I don't know who put a bug up her butt. Yet it's my job as a white male to do as much listening as possible. That was really hard to say, well, how much do I actually want to sit down and listen to this woman and her perspective? Just to clarify, and this is really weird. She was a white woman. I don't know if it's stranger to say this, but if she was a black woman, I think I would have been like, okay, I want to hear everything she has to say about this because I clearly do not know what I'm doing here. This is her experience. But with this particular person, I wasn't sure where the critique was coming from. Mm. And honestly, I had to look at it and say, can I fix this? Do I want to fix this? Do I want to invest in this relationship? And it really ate my energy for a couple of weeks. Well, your example illustrates that sometimes the hardest conversations we can have are the greatest times of growth because it forces us to figure out what do we value? Who are we? How do we want to show up in the world? We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to samantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. Two last questions I have for you today. When I ask these of every interviewee, what's a piece of advice or core truth that you would leave us with? Well, conversations matter, obviously. Yeah. And that it takes time to design them well. Yeah. And to give yourself that time is time well spent. What's a question that you're struggling with right now that we could pass along to our audience? Well, how can you have time? How yeah. can we take time? This is a question I think we all have to ask ourselves is, am I making time for the things that matter most? The classic question of when I look at my calendar, does it actually represent my goals yeah. and my values? And the answer is a lot of the times, ooh, got to work on that. And am I willing to change it? Yeah. And know, am I willing to change it? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a conversation I have with myself weekly, Daniel. So that's a good one. <laughs> yes, I'm ditto. <laughs> so excited to have met you and already the connections you've brought me. Such rich information today. And so just excited to share this episode. I appreciate getting to know you. Thank you so much, Misty. I, I appreciate the opportunity. 
Absolutely. Okay. Take care. Well, there you have it. Our last discussion of season three with a guy I most certainly will keep in touch with as he offers such a great deal of value on so many levels. I'm particularly grateful to Daniel for sharing how he's taking his own medicine and thinking through the hard conversations in his life. For now, if you want to learn more about Daniel or leverage his services for yourself, just go to danielstillman.com where you can find out more about his services and even download some of his free chapters of his book. We'll link to this information on marketingsweats.com where you can go download all episodes of season one, two, and three. For now, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to another great season filled with learning and inspiration. As our theme this season said, we've all been looking back to what was once normal, and now it's time to build the bridge to the future and look ahead. I can't wait to see what's to come for all of us in 2021. Do keep in touch, reach out with a review, and let me know what you want to hear in another year. All my best. Keep going, marketers. It's been a grueling year, but there's so much opportunity ahead. Talk soon. 